good news for you this morning. Over 2,000 years ago, the world changed. A group of women were mourning. A group of students were fearfully hiding. A group of religious teachers were conspiring. And most likely a host of demonic beings, including Satan himself, were rejoicing. Why? Because on the last day of the week, Jesus of Nazareth was put to death. All of his authoritative teaching had ceased. All of his miraculous healings were done. All of his supernatural demonstration of deity seemed to be over. He was crucified, and he was dead, and he was buried in an unused tomb of a rich man. Good Friday, as we call it, was good for all of Jesus' enemies because the nuisance in their lives seemed to be put to rest. But as those, women's, as those women approached the tomb of the Lord in that solemn state, they soon left rejoicing. The good news that, that that day was that Jesus had risen from the dead and he is alive. There should not have been shock by his, those closest to him, but there was. Some ran to the tomb to see for themselves and the tomb was empty. Others rejoiced. Some were still afraid and doubted could this even be possible? Once Jesus appeared to the disciples, the mere touching of Jesus' new resurrection body was all the proof that they needed. He is alive. And as Jesus told them before his death that he would be killed by his people, but that he would also raise from the dead. But he also told them a very important truth. He also told them that he would leave for a time before his glorious return where he would gather all those who belong to him. Both the dead and the alive would, would come together and they would live with Christ for all eternity and reign with him in his eternal kingdom. Now if you were here last week, and I know we have a lot of visitors, but as, as, as we spoke about last week, we spoke on the parable of the ten minas or the ten talents as some people call it. And then how this was an instruction to the disciples of a great truth that Jesus Christ has gone, but he's coming again. And as he comes again, he comes in victory. Because as he left, he left in victory. And he will return again to this world as the king and the ruler of all things. He will come in victory, the victory that he gained on the cross of Christ, the victory that he gained when he rose from the grave victoriously over sin and death, he will come as king to rule for all eternity. And the parable that we learned last week was a very important parable for the church and for those who don't belong to the church. Now, if you're unfamiliar with those terms, we'll say it another way. This parable is important for those who follow Christ and those who don't. Those who believe in him as the true son of God, as the only way to salvation, and those who reject that truth and live for themselves. Let me ask you this morning to turn to Luke chapter 19. In this very important passage, not a typical Sunday morning, Easter morning, resurrection day passage, but one nonetheless that speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we are to live in according or or as accordance with that resurrection. Luke chapter 19, let me read verses 11 down to verse 28. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
Now the first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna had made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna had made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept, laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with, these, with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want to reign, want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now last week we looked at two of the three main truths from this passage main ideas one was the the forecast of the kingdom Jesus is giving us a clear timeline of what's going to happen in his life through this parable and what was really interesting to us was that he related it to a very uh, well-known headline in Jesus's day where uh, the son of Herod the Great Archelaus would go and receive the, the area by which Jesus was standing as he told this parable. And Archelaus had to go to Rome and stand before Caesar to officially receive this. But the, the people that lived in Jericho and the, the greater area of Judea and Samaria, they didn't want him to rule over them. And Jesus knows that the people by which are, that are following him to Jerusalem, passing through Jericho, would know this story. And so Jesus uses that headline of the culture, and he says, let me make a, a, a greater application to this, the story of what I'm going to do when I go to Jerusalem. It's the forecast of his kingdom. One, by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, Jesus is officially and, uh, and, and um going to go and receive the kingdom he's going to ascend into heaven upon giving his life as a ransom for many after rising from the dead and he's going to receive the kingdom fully from his father he represented the kingdom he inaugurated the kingdom but ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God he would receive it but by receiving it he had to leave his disciples and that's very important for this message for the church today, for his disciples that day, because it was new information that they had not yet understood. I mean, it was enough for them to realize that Jesus was going to go and die on the cross, that he wasn't going to come and usher in this kingdom. And so the idea of leaving was difficult for them to fathom. Wait, you're going to leave us? We thought you were going to come and to, to inaugurate this kingdom and, uh, and officiate it uh, for all eternity, now and today, we wanted you to be this Messiah that was this political ruler and, and, and king over all these people that have oppressed us, like the Romans and the Greeks. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to leave. I'm going to give my, my life upon the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise from the grave. And I'm going to go to be with my father. Why? Because I'm receiving the kingdom. And upon a leaving... Through this parable, he's instructing his disciples to engage in the business of the kingdom. And then he will return. And upon returning, as this nobleman does in the parable, upon returning, he will say, let's see what you've done while I was gone. And that is the message for the church today. That was the truth that we looked at last week. That servants of the kingdom will engage in the business of the kingdom. We acknowledge business as a difficult word. We think of business as something that is trying to gain a, a, ben a benefit or a value for us. But look, if we are in Christ, then we are engaging in the business of the kingdom because we're in Christ's kingdom. 
And anything that we are doing, we are doing for his honor, for his glory, and for the expansion of his kingdom because we belong to him. We are his possession. We consider this gift that we've received, which is the gospel, much like these servants receive these minas, that is an invaluable investment. It's the greatest thing we could have ever received. Greater than our children, greater than our grandchildren, greater than any success in this world, greater than marriage, greater than any earthly possession. The gospel and salvation through Jesus Christ is an invaluable investment in our lives. But he says, do it and engage until I come. You know why? Because not only is it an invaluable investment, but we're supposed to be purposeful with it. He doesn't say consider it an invaluable investment. He says engage in the business. Be intentional. Seek out those who need to know and understand this beautiful gospel. Be purposeful with it. Because why? It's a timely treasure. He says do it until I come. And so last week we looked at this idea of as servants of the kingdom, we engage in the business of the kingdom. And what's also interesting is we saw that, that as these servants served and as they took and invested this money, that they saw differing returns. And we looked at the idea of, of as the church, we are to call to be faithful. And by God's sovereign power and control, he allows different people in their faithfulness to see different levels of effectiveness. We may not all be the Billy Grahams or the Adrian Rogers. We may just be the Nathan Pellegras. We may just be the, the, the men that don't, we don't even know their names. But in heaven, their effectiveness is so great by those that they have uh, invested in and, and led uh, in, to expand the kingdom of God. And so there's varying levels of kingdom effectiveness. This last point in, under servants of the kingdom is where I stopped. It's a very unique doctrine. It's the doctrine of eternal reward. Notice with me in verse 17. He says, to those who've invested, he says, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, you are, you are going to be over five cities. Now, the blessing that is received is given to faithful servants. We, we kind of calculated last week that ten minas in today's standard of money in U.S. dollars, we could say was worth somewhere around $56,000, give or take. It's an estimation. But is it possible or even, is, is it even logical to assume that $56,000 could purchase 10 cities? See, these men invested money and they had a great return, but none of their investment was worth 10 cities or five cities or one city because the enormous blessing that awaits the faithful is given by a benevolent God who doesn't give by what we earn, he gives by what he chooses to give. He gives by what he desires to reward his people. He calls us to faithfulness, but he rewards us as he sees fit, just as he saves us as he sees fit. Not by some condition of us, not by some uh, earning in our lives. He saves us by his grace, and he rewards us by his grace. But the difficulty that I've had through this doctrine in my life is does God give varying rewards in heaven? I see some of you here today, and the question that I ask is, will your reward in heaven be greater than mine? Now, as a disclaimer, we're not talking about salvation. We're not saying that you're more saved than I'm saved. We're not saying you have more of the Holy Spirit than I have the Holy Spirit. We are talking about a post-resurrection. You are in the presence of Christ for all eternity, and yet does the Bible teach 
that we will have varying levels of reward in heaven, or is it all equal playing field? Does the Bible teach that? It kind of appears that way from this passage. I mean, one guy got ten cities, one guy got five cities. And it was in connection to the faithfulness uh, which they served. Now, I have, a, have struggled with this doctrine. It seems unfair, right? <laughs> I mean, it seems like, well, if salvation is by grace and not by works, are eternal rewards by works? Is that what we're teaching? There's a, uh, an author, well-known author and commentator, uh, commentator named Craig Bloomberg, who's a critic of this theology or critic of this doctrine, And here's why. He says, we live in a culture that grows ever more performance-centered with each passing year. Competition infects children's spirits from far too early in age in sports and school and at play. Adults face longer hours on the job with less job security and more performance-based evaluation like merit pay, commission, pressures of promotion, and the like than ever anticipated a generation ago when labor-saving devices were being heralded as ushering in the age of the 30-hour work week with, a manif- with manifold opportunities for leisure and recreation. He said, not surprisingly, but never- nevertheless tragically, the spirit of competition, comparison with one another, and rewards on the basis of merit have overwhelmed many aspects of Christian living as well, both corporately and personally. He concludes that the church should, quote, jettison this misguided and discouraging doctrine of eternal rewards that distinguishes one believer from another. It's pretty compelling. But I have a critique. And the critique is this. Our eternal rewards in heaven do not distinguish us from one to another. They don't distinguish us because our salvation is given by the grace of God. And what God chooses to do in our lives and on this earth and in all eternity is always by His glory. And so we are called to be faithful and what he chooses to do and how he allows us to lead or rule or do whatever in eternity is by his choice under his wisdom for his glory. And so there is no distinguishing between believers in heaven. God is not going to say to us, well, here's the religious elite, here's the religious upper class, and you're going to live in the, the Germantown and Carnival area of, of heaven, and then everyone else, you are the middle class, we're going to put you in Bartlett, and then you know where the lower class live in heaven, right? I'm not even going to say it, because you're just going to fit areas of Memphis in your mind there. God's not going to do that. But yet we acknowledge that Scripture teaches and, and seems to point to the fact that God will reward the faithful. So I think what's important for us to see, one, is that inheritance and reward are different. In many passages, they speak of the same, but in a lot of passages, they're, they're very different ideas. Inheritance is something that we inherit as salvation being... Ch- people who were enemies of God and adopted as sons through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we inherit salvation. It is not something we've earned or deserved. It is not a reward. It is an inheritance. We are given that by our Father as his children when we come into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And reward is speaking very differently. And there are passages like the Beatitudes where in Matthew chapter 5 we're told that the poor in spirit receive the kingdom, the meek inherit the earth, the pure in heart will see God, the persecuted will receive a great reward in heaven. Now in that context, I think it's, that reward is speaking of eternity. It's speaking of the inheritance. It's all the same truth. And so in that sense... Inheritance and reward is the same. But in our passage today, 
we're told something very different. We're not looking at the idea of salvation. We're looking at the faithfulness of believers in Christ who serve and engage in faithful ministry while Christ has left this earth until he returns and the reward that we will receive because of that faithfulness. Let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As with all doctrines, we don't want to ever want to draw a doctrine that we hold tightly to from one verse of Scripture, right? That's the danger of the Jehovah Witnesses. That's the danger of the Mormons. Not only do they want to create their own translations of the Bible, but they want to take one verse and they want to make a doctrine out of it. We don't want to do that. So outside of this parable, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul is talking about faithful ministry in the church in Corinth. He's speaking to the Corinthians, and he says in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will dissolve it. Notice the day is capitalized. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, what's important to to note about this passage that Paul is speaking is that, one, he is speaking to the church. He is talking about the coming day of the Lord, the judgment of God. And he's talking about the reward that is based upon the ministry of the people of God and the church that they accomplish in this world. And he's making the the illustration that if we move forward in ministry, if we engage in the business of the kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit with the foundation of Jesus Christ, meaning what Jesus wants us to do and how he wants us to live and with his purposes in mind for the church, then we are building building on the foundation with precious stones, with gold, with silver, much like the temple was built. But if we are building upon that foundation with hay and, and wood and straw, well, fire will burn that up. And what he means is that, is that is useless work. It is worthless work in ministry. And, and that's something that's so important for us as a church is that we strive to do what Christ wants us to do, what God's word says, not what's popular down the street. Listen, if you want an Easter egg hunt at church, there are tons of Easter egg hunts. Go get you one. But we're not going to have Easter egg hunts at church. We're going to focus on Christ and what Chris, or Easter is all about, just like Christmas is all about. We're not against you getting candy and an Easter egg or a $100 bill from your grandma. Man, Easter egg yourself to death today. But we want to make the, the work of this ministry and build upon it to always point to the Lord Jesus. Because one day... He will evaluate our lives as individuals and as a church and the things that are worthless and useless will be burned away. And so he says that those who have a work of ministry that survives will receive a reward. That's a powerful passage about this doctrine. In 2 Corinthians, he says something very similar. 
we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. And that word evil means worthless. And the judgment seat of Christ is not something that believers fear because when Christ returns, we face no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But instead, he will evaluate our works. Are we engaging in the business of ministry while Christ has left this earth? Are we doing the business in expanding his kingdom? Or are we making our schedules full of trivial things that have no impact on God's word or his kingdom? Let's remember too, like I said, that whatever rewards are given and that how they may be connected to our faithfulness, they are not because of our faithfulness. They have a correlation, but they are purely by the grace of God. If we don't deserve salvation, we cannot assume that we are entitled to rewards in eternity either. God appears to have created a way by which our human faith and work works in conjunction with his sovereign purposes. That's why God does not say you are merely saved, but that you must believe to be saved. That you must demonstrate faith. He says, you must come to me. You must repent of your sins. You must believe in me. He is calling us to action. And in that action, he is working out his sovereign purposes. When we pray, we can say that God works through our prayer to carry out his sovereign plan, but our prayers do not contain miraculous power. God has the miraculous power that he works through our prayers. We don't believe in special incantations and words that, that create things out of nothing. We believe that God creates things out of nothing. And so our faith in him at salvation affects a spiritual transformation when we respond to the gospel. And yet it's the same truth that the faith that we're given allows us to believe. Therefore, whatever good works that we do as Christians on this earth until he returns is supplied by the Spirit of God, enacted by our faith that he gives us. And all these things are, are given to redeem sinners and result in eternal rewards that are part of his sovereign plan, however he wants to reward us. So a couple objections. Well, Nathan, isn't this similar to James and John who wanted the honor in eternity by sitting at the right and left hand of God? That's the first question that came to my head. We just preached on that passage. James and John, the two of the inner three, come to Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, uh, in eternity, we'd really like to sit on your right and your left hand in the place of honor. And we talked about that, right? It's, 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 it's an arrogant statement. It's a desire that, that one, they were, they were considering themselves as important, and two, they were considering themselves uh, over all these other guys that they had lived life with. You know, don't, don't forget about them. They're fine. Is that the same thing? Rewards in heaven? Well, listen, the Bible never tells you to seek rewards in heaven. The Bible commands you to be faithful. And by God's grace and mercy, he will reward you in heaven. You're merely told to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things are added unto you. They were seeking rewards. And when you desire to seek rewards in heaven, guess what you become? A Pharisee. When you think that your work will somehow gain you a personal advantage, you are a Pharisee. When you realize that your work is out of love and not duty, you are a believer because you serve Christ and you are faithful to him because you love him and you want to be faithful to the one that's been faithful to you. Presbyterian author Charles Hodge says, those who love little do little. 
Those who do little enjoy less. What a man sows, that he will also reap. As the rewards of heaven are given on the grounds of the merit of Christ, and as he has a right to do what he will do with his own, there would be no injustice were the that were the thief saved on the cross as highly exalted as the Apostle Paul. But the general drift of Scripture is in favor of a doctrine that a man shall reap what he sows, that God will reward everyone according to, although not on account of, his works. Another objection. If salvation is universal for all believers, shouldn't eternal rewards be universal? Well, they are universal because everyone that believes and trusts in Christ will receive rewards. But God will reward his people as he sees fit in connection with their faithfulness. Which, by the way, in the end, whatever rewards you get in heaven because of the resurrection of Christ is exactly the amount of rewards that God intended you to have. No, no, no more, no less. Just as God determined that the thief on the cross would believe at the very last moment of his life, so God determined that that man would receive very little rewards because he had no time to be faithful on this earth. And yet that is exactly the plan and the purposes of God, which leads me to my last question, which is if if other believers in heaven have more rewards for me, won't I be jealous and envious of what they have? Absolutely not. You know why? Because Jesus, uh, the psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The thief in heaven isn't going, man, if I would have just had three or four years on earth, I'd be much better off than these other people here rewarded by me. No, he's in the presence of Christ and he is full with joy. He has nothing more to desire. Nothing more that he needs. Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. If that's your heart today, God will reward you in heaven as he sees fit, and he will do it abundantly, not in measure, not equal measure to what you did on this earth, because nothing you will receive in heaven comes close to the minuscule effort that you make on this earth. You may, you may impact millions on this earth, and that doesn't compare to the glories of heaven. It doesn't compare. Listen, the thief on the cross was sitting in heaven. His mind was blown at the presence of Christ, because what did he deserve? He deserved the full wrath of God. And I'll be honest with you. I don't like the word rewards. If it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't even use it. But I'm going to make an alternative phrase because that's what pastors do. And I'm going to call it roles and responsibilities in eternity. Roles and responsibilities because when you look at the grand scheme of the whole plan of redemption, when you think about Adam in the garden before his fatal flaw of sin you know that God gave Adam roles and responsibilities his role was to rule over the earth his role was to lead his family his role was to protect his wife his role was to give honor and glory to God and his role was to obey the one who gave him life Eve had different roles and different or same with same responsibilities. And in those roles and responsibilities, Eve could have said, "Listen, this isn't really fair. I mean, you're giving Adam this responsibility and not me." No, they weren't concerned about that. And in the same way as Christ has risen from the dead, as he is making all things new, he will create a new heaven and a new earth that will literally be merged 
together in a way that we can't even imagine besides a pure, simple, uh, fallible glimpse that we have in the church, which reflects the kingdom of God as best we can as human sinners. And this, this beautiful new heaven and earth that that's come, comes together for all eternity, we will be given rewards or we will be given roles and responsibilities in this new earth. And in those roles and responsibilities that God chooses to give us, that God ordains us differently with different purposes, just like he does in the church today. Listen, if you're a greeter, if you have the gift of mercy, if you're an elder, you may look at those gifts and go, man, those are amazing gifts. I I wish God had given me those things. And that's the kind of sin that we have to stamp out of the church. But the roles and responsibilities that God gives us in eternity, we're not going to say that because heaven is perfect. And so God will bless according to his will and for his glory. And I'm not going to read it, but in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll be reminded that the body has different functions. It has feet, it has arms, and the arms aren't supposed to say to the feet, I wish I was a hand or I wish I was a foot, but instead be thankful for what God's given. It's a great example of that. So God will give us as servants of Christ an abundance of rewards. Let Let me close this section with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Which, by the way, if you want to read an amazing treatise on heaven, read volume two of Jonathan Edwards' works. He preaches on Romans 2.10, and you could read that section. It's all about heaven and the glory of heaven. And he says this, it will be no damp to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy, everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Those who are not so high in glory as others will not envy those that are higher, but they will have so great and strong and pure love to them that they will rejoice in their superior happiness. Their love to them will be such that they will rejoice that they are happier than themselves so that instead of having a damp to their happiness, it will add to their happiness. For there will be perfect harmony in that society. So let me encourage you this morning to consider, and I don't want you to leave here today and going, man, I really need to strive hard to to get some great rewards in heaven. But understand that the The demonstration that Jesus is giving us in this parable is not for you to to walk away here and go engage in business to get a great reward. Instead, it is engage in business until I come because of who I am and because of your love for me as a faithful servant. So not only in this passage do we see faithful servants, but we see faithless servants. This last servant comes to Jesus or comes to the nobleman in this parable and he takes this investment, this minna, this valuable investment that he's given and what does he do? He puts it away in a handkerchief. And why does he do it? Because he was afraid of God. He, he thinks of God as a severe man. He thinks of God as a cheat and a swindler. And so he merely takes it and he puts it away. He doesn't even bury it like we would think people would do in that day. They buried their possessions to protect them. No, he's careless with it. It's like he takes his wedding ring with that beautiful jewel that your husband's bought you, ladies, and you throw it in your glove compartment in your your car amidst all the frivolous paper and napkins and Chick-fil-A sauce. Or that junk filing cabinet at your house that needed to be cleaned out in 1980, and you're like, I'll just stick it in there. 
it's pretty safe. He takes this and he says, I'm just going to put it in this handkerchief. Why? Because it's not valuable to me. And it's not valuable to me because I live in fear of God. I don't love God. See, this faithless servant is not really a true servant. He's merely called a servant, but he's not showing that he's a servant that loves the master. He's obeying out of, uh, uh, out of fear and not even a reverential fear. It's an untrue fear. It's an erroneous, misconstrued fear of the character of God. He thinks that he's an evil master. He thinks that the master is a swindler and a cheat. And thus he cares nothing about this valuable possession that belongs to the master. And this is faithless servants in the church. This is the churchgoer that comes on Easter Sunday because they fear the, the wrath of God, but they don't have a love for God. This is the, the hypocrite who says that they're a Christian, but they don't live day by day, Monday through Saturday as a Christian. This is the Pharisee who thought that they could do things to please God in order to merit some salvation or that their salvation would be because of the lineage of their birthright, of their, of their family or their culture. These are not people of faith that believe God and love God. They just fear Him. And so they're truly faithless. They misconstrue God's character and they're critical of Him and they critique Him. Instead of seeing the love of the Father, they see the, the anger and the wrath of God alone. They call Him unfair or fictional because they lack the belief to see God as He truly is. A benevolent God that allows the sun and the rain and the food in their bellies and the, the, the lodging over their heads as a gift from him. And thus, when they're given a treasure, they don't consider it valuable, nor would they even dare try to multiply it. Ultimately, the faithful servant is looking out for his own interests instead of the interests of his master. And it should bring us great mourning on this day of celebration to know that there are churches full of people all over our country and our world that are living a lie and thinking that they belong to Jesus because they know who Jesus is. And they belong to Jesus because they made some decision when they were seven years old and they've never thought about or had any impact in their lives of spiritual growth since then. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They don't talk to Jesus. They don't learn from Jesus. They don't love Jesus. And thus they're faithless servants that don't value his message. And what are the, what are the consequences of a faithless servant? John MacArthur calls him the false servant or the false convert. Verse 24 the master says, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It seems best to see that this punishment at the judgment when Christ returns is those who have considered to be servants in outward appearance, but in their heart, they never believed. And because they know the gospel, and because the gospel has been presented and shared hundreds and hundreds of times, they have a greater knowledge of truth. They understand who God is. They understand what Jesus did on the cross, and they don't care, and they have a greater uh, understanding and truth. And so the, 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 the sadness of this is that they will face a greater judgment. Because just as there is greater rewards in heaven, there is greater punishment in hell. 
Hebrews chapter 10. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The worst punishment. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The consequences for the faithless servant is a stricter judgment because the truth had been given and they rejected the truth. Also turn you to Luke chapter 12. Jesus is telling a similar similar parable about a master and the faithful managers of what the master possesses. But Jesus is very clear about the unfaithful servant in this similar passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 45. That as the, the master leaves and he goes away, much like Christ has gone away, he's, he has the servants there that say to himself, my master's delayed in coming. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. And the master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him. And at that hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master, but his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, not, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone jesus says to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him and to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more in the glorious understanding of great rewards in heaven that we don't deserve. Church, let me tell you this morning that there are people in this world, maybe here in this building, that will face a stricter judgment in hell because they have known the gospel and they have continually rejected the gospel day in and day out throughout their lives and they deserve the punishment and they deserve the beating because they are turning away from the creator of the universe who made them and formed him them and have brought the gospel to them to be saved. God is not unjust. He is just to punish all for their sins and yet he chooses to save. And so may today be the day that you no longer turn from the gospel. May today be the day that you no longer turn a deaf ear to all the screaming voices in the world that say God's not real and God's not true and His Word is full of, of errors and, and, and skepticism, but instead that you would believe the truth of the gospel and that you would be saved. That a loving God who did not have to save you has brought the gospel and sent His Son to save you from sin. And He calls you to believe in Him. And trust in him and surrender to the rule and the authority of his, that he already owns as Lord of, of all. And so the faithless servant seems to, underst- seems to point to having a stricter judgment. And then lastly, these are opposing citizens. These are the ones that just flat out deny him and reject him. And they too, in verse 27 of Luke chapter 19, that these are enemies of his, distinct from the faithless servant. The faithless servant is the sheep, the wolf in sheep's clothing. The enemies are just mere scoffers, those of unrighteousness that are suppressing the truth, who don't, from the beginning, don't want the master to reign over them. And they will be slaughtered. They will face the punishment of God. As Romans 1 states. They don't want God to rule over them because they want to rule over themselves. Which sounds so easy to believe in a democracy. But in a monarchy 
the citizen does not choose the king. In an absolute monarchy, the king and the kingdom is given outside of the opinion of the citizens. And maybe in our country and countries all over the world, if we lived under a, an absolute monarchy like the, uh, our fathers in the past, then we would come to understand the spiritual truth of what the Bible teaches about a God whose kingdom and His rule does not need us as citizens. We don't make God stronger. We don't make Him more powerful. He is the eternal, infinite God that reigns and rules over all things. And as His creation, we are born in sin and we reject Him. And yet He chooses to show love toward us, even while we are sinners, by sending His Son to die for us. And yet still people shake their fist at God. Still people reject His rule and His reign. And in do so, they will face the consequences. That their punishment will be not annihilation, but an eternity in hell and suffering. And so we plead with you this morning. We plead with you to believe in Christ. We plead with you this morning to know Him, to serve Him, be faithful to Him. We plead with you this morning to understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is incredible news for the church and the worst news possible for the lost. Because on that day that Christ returns, if you have not received Him and accepted Him, the time is over and the judge is coming. And when the judge comes, he will divide the sheep and the goats, as the Bible say. He will put those that follow him and those that reject him, those that follow him to eternal reward, and those that reject him to eternal suffering. But there's still time. My job today is to teach you the word of God, and I will do so until he comes. And he hadn't come yet. So would you believe in him today? And church, would you serve him today and trust him today and be faithful to him? And it's as he chooses to reward you, he will do so for his glory. Let's pray.